Welcome to the Right to the Streets edition of the GM Moving podcast. Join the conversation about what makes our streets, parks and public spaces joyful, welcoming places for people to be and to be active. Join me, Eve Holt, strategic leader at Greater Sport, on the journey around the streets as we explore people's freedom to move about without fear. In each episode, we hear about the roles we can all play to make where we live, work and play places where all women and girls feel they belong and are invited to be active. We gather stories, experiences and ideas as we speak to strategic leaders, decision makers and lots of local people who are creating the conditions in place for everyday moving and active lives for all. In this episode, we're focusing in on some of the specific changes needed to create the conditions, communication and cultural shifts that can better enable active lives. The GM Moving mission is to enable active lives for all by growing a movement for movement. Active lives are therefore two words you'll hear again and again during this series and throughout the whole of the GM Moving podcast. But what does it actually mean to live an active life? And what are we learning about what gets in the way? Come along with me to the annual GM Moving Conference and hear lots of people from across Greater Manchester who are helping create the conditions for active lives for all. As I ask them what they think the key ingredients are to making this happen in practice. I think often when, we, when I grew up, certainly exercise was seen as a bit of a punishment. And I think active lives should never be framed as you have to exercise in order to pay for eating the wrong things. Um, I think it should be about you should move more because it's great and it's fun. In this episode, I also speak to Helen Pidd, the Guardian's editor for the North of England. We chat about how communications and messaging locally and in the media impact our perception of safety on our streets and the challenge of crafting a public narrative that normalises active lives and everyday moving for all, whilst the public demand pushes the press to tell stories which amplify the extremes. It's really tricky because if you even, like say if the statistics were to show that for every 50,000 people who cycle down the Fallowfield loop, one gets mugged, right? And it's a really horrible mugging. I don't think the media would do a story saying 49,999 people uh, got home safely last night. So I think that you have to sort of counter the extremes on one side with the extremes on the other. But first, discover how local people are getting out and about and being active and the difference local groups and the local environment can have. Come with me to Old Trafford to hear how a local club is helping hundreds of people to gain the confidence they need to get outside and to start running. Mal Shy Running Club in Old Trafford meet every week for guided jogs and runs around the local area. On this cold, dark evening, I join the beginner's session. At the start of the year, they started the Couch to 5K Challenge. It's a nine-week running plan that anyone can do with the aim to build up to 5k run over those nine weeks. This week, the group is tackling week five, which culminates in a non-stop 20-minute run. We meet Jane, the founder of the Mile Shire Club. Jane's fab. She set the club up in 2017 and now has almost 3,000 members across their five sites in Trafford. Hey! 
Thanks for coming to meet us. I met her outside of the beautifully lit Limelight Centre, which is the base for the Old Trafford Running Club. Okay, so now we're inside, a bit warmer. Got rid of my bag and my pannier. So tell us a bit about you, Jane, and yeah, the Malshai Club. So I've been here three and a half years with my team of wonderful volunteer run coaches and we deliver beginner running sessions here from from Limelight in Old Trafford. We're really chuffed to be here. We love this area. Uh, We love the people who live around here and uh, we really do make a difference. So uh, this one of 11 clubs that we have uh, at Mao Shai Club. It's one of my favourite clubs because I feel like we really make a difference here, particularly with um, Muslim women and the BAME community. So why did you start the Mao Shai Club in the first place? Uh, for a love of running and what running had done for me, my mental health. So running was one of the only things that really helped sort my head out and it had such a profound impact on my well-being that I wanted to bring it to others and it's often seen as something that wasn't accessible. We'll get them running. <laughs> um, yeah, it had such a profound impact on, on my life that I wanted to bring it to other people and it's not necessarily something that people find easy to get into so I started a beginner running club so that we could be open to anyone and yeah, that was six years ago in January and here we are today. And just give listeners a sense of the scale because the numbers are phenomenal of people that have come running with you since you set this up yeah thank you so um it's funny actually because i've been reviewing all of our clubs recently sort of planning for the future um and funding for the future so as a two weeks ago we have 3104 members yeah which is pretty cool across all the running and the walking clubs um plus 10k runners but predominantly they are beginner runners they're people who've never exercised before coming into fitness so yeah we we as a team it's not it's not been me it's been our team we've got 27 qualified run leaders and upwards and then we've got four freelance PTs and yoga instructors on our books if you like so they all get involved with getting people active it's not just me anymore um, so we're all we've, we're all patting ourselves on the back of job well done but there's a load more we can be doing you know we're not finished by a long way we're not finished by a long way so when did you start running a uh, lot later in life so I was 28 and uh, I did it as a way to stop smoking I was a heavy smoker and for a bit of me time so I started at 28 and started by there was no couch to 5k program then so it was very much running down to the bottom of the street and uh, getting injured lots because <laughs> I didn't know how to do it uh, in the gym there's times in the gym when I had to slide down the banister because I couldn't move because my legs were so uh, were so were so broken but eventually after six months of pure grit I, I did get through and I went and ran a half marathon yeah <laughs> okay i just started running and running and when, when people said to me where what have you done today i said i've run from here x from a to b and they said you've run there as if i was running a long way yeah and i ran back as if it was the most normal thing it broke me to start off with and but the benefits when i got into it i.e without injuring myself uh, managed to enjoy it that's when i realized it was just having a great impact on me and my mental health and that's why I want to bring to other people and obviously we're going out for run with some of your coaches and some of the women in in a little while I'm looking forward to that and men men. (laughs) Uh, and it's you know it's it's a dark evening isn't it Um, and I know not a lot of us you know find it harder to get out and run on our streets 
particularly when it's dark and in these winter months. So obviously running together as a group is an important part of what you're helping facilitating. Why does that make a difference? A few reasons. One is it holds everyone accountable to committing to, to the run. So if you know you're going to meet some friends later in the evening, then you want to get out and, and you want to make sure that you're there on time. Um, but also there's uh, safety in numbers. So running a lot of women who come to us, particularly women, men as well, uh, often cite that they don't like to run on their own. So running with other people makes them feel safer, makes them feel more confident about going to certain areas as a group rather than going to places on their own. And particularly when running in the dark um, and our group meet in the evening, uh, it, it is a, sort of a people feel a lot more secure in a group setting when it's when it's when you know, the hazards and things around them. Great. Whilst I've been stood here talking to you, I keep seeing more and more people come in through the doors and the running yeah. kit ready to go. So it I know. Is, yeah. But it's interesting because this is one of our quieter clubs. So our smaller clubs are Old Trafford and Partington, and the larger clubs are Sale, Ermston, and Stretford. But with the smaller clubs, clubs comes a smaller community and a more more intimate setting. So people are. Some people prefer that that smaller setup. Some people um, like to see the same faces every week and not get bombarded by the numbers. So you know our mission, our GM Moving mission is uh, Active Lives for All and obviously doing things like this where you help facilitate, provide that accountability, have you know groups come together, make it social is a key way in which we enable more active lives. But we also know that the physical environment makes a big difference. So the Right to the Streets project is really thinking about what can we do around our streets and our public spaces that mean they are safer, they are more welcoming, they are places that we all feel like we belong and that they invite all of us to be active. So for you, what what does that look like? When you're running around, what kind of spaces and places do you think reflect what good looks like? Well, it's interesting because when I started the club here, there was a, a lady we used, I used to speak to, and we'd run around a, a playing field here, and there'd be a, there'd, there'd be this little bit of dark alleyway we'd have to run down, and there would be a, a light, and 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 it and it was knocked out, so someone had broken it, so it wasn't working. And every week she said, "I'm on the case. I'm on the case with the council. I'm going to get it sorted, or whoever it was responsible for fixing this light." And it got fixed, and the following week it was broken again. So um, for me, I think. Say, I was thinking about this. I think safer streets is very much about light, so having um, lots of light, but also um, perhaps more of a police presence would be nice. Uh, certainly in the early days, we, we saw pl- uh, police community supporters around here a lot, which was great, um, but not so much these days. Um, so more light, wider streets, so there's lots of cars parked up on pavements you can't get past. That's a problem. Um, there's lots of paths here with... Uh, roots coming up, up up the pavement you know we see that um, so it would be nice to have uh, better maintained footpaths better lighting streets and to make it more joyous as well I think it very much comes from within the community as well I've got a friend here who lives here she, well, she's one of my she's one of my uh, PTs in my books she set up some beehives in, in Hullard Park and she gets together volunteers that get involved with the gardening and that sort of thing I think when people take ownership and pride in their, the place where they live then that helps promote safer environment a more welcoming environment uh, but that takes time I suppose it takes time
It's quite noticeable actually on your on the approach to limelights because there's quite a few kind of quite a lot of street arts. It's quite nice kind of mosaics for some of the street signs. There's a real sense of kind of some local traders as well. Quite a lot of small local traders that again feel like immediately felt like a safe place that people are going to welcome you. Um, so all those things make a difference, don't they? There's somewhere to go and it feels like a community. It immediately feels like a community. But the shops around here are fantastic. You know, there's, they are the, the independent traders, and you go in the fresh fruit and the veg and everything I mean you can pick up anything here if you're into your Caribbean food it's fantastic as more members of the club arrive at limelight and get ready to go on their non-stop 20 minute run we head outside and I bump into Sam who's one of Mileshire's coaches she's managing one of the other groups here tonight who are doing a full 5k run so everyone's getting ready to go for your run and I'm not going to step some between you and your run. But were you just so it's Sam, isn't it? It's Sam, Samina. yeah. It's Samina, but everybody just calls me Sam, yeah. Sam. So, and you're one of the, the coaches. That's right, yeah. Fantastic. And how, how did you get involved? Well, to be honest, I got uh, involved for the social aspect because I've been running since before Marsh. I was actually set up in 2012 and I thought, you know what, I need to make some new friends. I just moved to the area and stuff like that. So I joined the Marsh and I've never looked back since. So I was in for about a year and then Jane said, do you fancy coaching? I said, yeah, why not? I don't mind encouraging people. So the rest is history and I'm still here. Fantastic. <laughs> so what do you get out of it then? I think enjoyment because it's nice to push people. Um, they think they can't do it, but once they've achieved the couch to 5K and they've actually done a 5K run and a park run, it's, it's a nice achievement to say that you've actually helped them along on their journey. And we're on, so this is the Couch to 5K run tonight, isn't it? And, and a 5K as well. And a 5K, OK. Yeah. And how far into the Couch to 5K women, how, how long have they been going so, so this far? is week five tonight, so they can do a 20-minute run hopefully tonight without stopping. So they're more or less halfway now. Well, they all look like they came bouncing through the doors. Yeah, before, they do. So, uh, yeah, they do. There's a real sense of like energy of uh, yeah being here, which is yeah. fantastic. And what anything in particular that you see then women get out of this experience? You know, any particular stories or some of the benefits that you think people experience? I think obviously the most obvious is is getting fit, losing weight, and making friends, and just getting out and enjoying it. Sometimes these women don't get out; they've got no friends and they're isolated, and just come out and they're more accountable because if you're meeting somebody, then you're more likely to come out whereas if you say well I'll go out and then I'll go tomorrow they'll go tomorrow you never go whereas here you know you've got a set date set time you come out and there's always somebody there to support you as well great right well I think we're probably going to be heading off very soon so where where are we going to be running this evening right today I am taking because I'm doing the park here today so I am taking them down Stretford Road into Manchester City Centre along Lloyd North Street Moss Lane East and then just making our way back here and it's just over I think it's about 5.1k and that is all main roads apart from when you just get on the little bit here everything else is main road so it should be well lit and straight roads so I'll be able to see where they are and they can always come back towards me if they're going too far. If anyone has any injuries do Just as Jane's know. delivering the all-important warm-up we chat to Razia another coach here at Malshine a trustee she tells me about some of the benefits of running and some of the cultural barriers women may face to leading an active life. My name is Razia and I'm like here leading coaching and coaching for running like Couch to 5K. I've been involved with this organisation as a trustee but then because I completed my own Couch to 5K so I thought like why not give it a go with other people as well. So when did you first get involved? Last year as a trustee because just to represent the community, represent the people, represent like you know our community and women like from our community as well. And what was it that drew you in initially to do the Couch to 5k? Just fitness like you know connecting again with nature and like you know be fit and healthy and 
good for myself, like, you know, it's my time, me time. And now, I mean, it must be brilliant. It's fantastic that you're doing this and just, you know, hearing the crowd out here this evening. But then you also do sessions tomorrow in the daytime as well, you were saying. Uh, I do different sessions. It's like, again, uh, empowering sessions in the community for women, understanding the importance of emotional and mental well-being and educating them, empowering them really, yeah, and giving them tools to be more confident and more independent in their own self. And what are some of the key barriers that some of the women face when we think about actually being able to, you know, run, jog, walk around some of our local streets? I think the areas and the time when they can go out at winters, it's, it gets really like, you know, dark early. So then it's a barrier again that we can't go after five. And especially in Islamic, like we can't go after a certain time of the day out in like, you know, running in the park, around the park and all that. And sometimes we have seen, like, you know, we heard about incidents happening in the park, which is not safe around the women or around anybody, right, you know. So, like, Hullard Park has been, like, you know, we would avoid completely. We would avoid somewhere where there is less people or less public. So, and again, if I would run, I would want, I don't want too many public as well, like, you know, around me when I'm running. So I need a little, my own safe space as well. For women with hijab, right, they would want something more secure and more secluded, right, in like private areas where they can be like, you know, free and open and not coming in the eye of public, like, you know, so that would be one of the uh, requirement. And that is one of the barrier that, you know, we don't feel very safe and it's not appropriate culturally that just to go out and run in the public. So maybe some secured space would be more recommended and required and it's that first step's often the hardest bit isn't it which is why the work that you do is so key and having people that you trust that get it you know who understand and you don't made to feel silly for the things that maybe you know stand in your way and that that's normalized it's so important so thank you so it looks like they're getting torches on and already are you all yeah yes so all the runners are here and the coaches are ready and jane starts to prepare the group for today's run uh, I know you've already mentioned... Oh, my God. Can you believe this? At the end of week five... Did, does anyone know what happens at the end of week five? Is that when we do a 20-minute run? A 20-minute continuous run, yeah. That's when we go from run-walk to running, OK? It's normal to freak out at this point, and history has told us <laughs> that for people getting to this stage, they drop out. After like, Jane's no, briefing, I put on my active soles and join Jane for a jog on so, the street beside Limelight Centre. She points out to me Penn Park, a local place that they avoid running around as a group. This is Penn Park on the left. It's one of the places that we can't go at night. Um, we can when it's dusk, but we do have uh, openly people dealing drugs, which, you know, we kind of into it sort of thing. But there's been, just before Christmas, I was talking to Natasha, somebody was murdered there, uh, and we've had other incidents in that particular park where women have been assaulted and sexually assaulted, not from our club, just in the public. So as a result, we only go in that park if it's light, so summertime, and as a group, and we stay together. Running alongside Jane is one of the local members of the group who tells me about her local neighbourhood and some of the issues she and her family have experienced. We've got a really lovely neighbourhood. The trouble doesn't come from our neighbourhood, it comes from outside, especially in the summer. And as Jane said, unfortunately, that gentleman got assaulted before Christmas and later died 
Obviously, I brought my children up there. <laughs> We've had antisocial behaviour there for about six years. Every summer, I've had the police, local councillors, Labour candidates, everyone involved. And it took us three years just to get the light bulbs. They were only put in just after the summer. Uh, so it's been horrendous. It means my children can't use the green in the park in the summer because of outside antisocial behaviour. Is there anything other than lighting then that makes a difference and makes it feel safer? There's a lot of fly tipping and rubbish that's not safe to run. They don't come and sweep the paths properly so they're overgrown with overhanging branches and there's just so much leaf debris, it's so slippy. Now, I have to admit, running and trying to record is pretty hard. <laughs> a bit like Challenge Annika. So after the run, me and the local residents continue our chat, standing still. As you found out tonight, we've got some really uneven pavements, we've got lots of tree stumps that have been knocked down, but there's no markings around it. In some areas, the lighting is really bad. And the good thing about coming in a group is if somebody takes a tumble, we've got a first aid kit, we've got first aiders, and then you get, you get, you're not on your own, basically. This place where we are now, so outside Limelight, there's such a sense of community here, and it feels like a place that there is community ownership and community pride. There's a lot of street art, you know, we went past um, OT Creative on the way past and it was like buzzing outside. And then when you go back to Penn Park, I guess it just looked a bit desolate, didn't it? It didn't look like somewhere that has a clear, I didn't even know it had a name, an identity and an ownership. Is there anything else about that around, you know, someone that lives next door to it? About what, what makes a difference? <laughs> I lived adjacent to it for 20 years. And like I said, I only found out when I came to Mile Shy that it was actually called Penn Park. Um, we had the tower blocks there for a long time so it's quite hard to create a community in the tower block sense of things um, the people that have lived on the houses at the bottom of the flats have lived there for a very long time we have a really stable great community my neighbour makes me cakes all the time I make her soup you know um, on our little estate we are, we are a community um, we just don't tend to get invited it's almost like because we're so close to the Manchester City Council boundary, it's almost like we're not part of Old Trafford. We're, we feel like a very... Because the other side of the main road as well, we feel like this very forgotten island of Old Trafford. I think when the new development comes, which at Trafford Council, Trafford Housing Association are about to build, the 256 eco-homes, we're hoping that'll bring a bit more families. Um, there's going to be a community space there apparently and hopefully that'll just bring the green to life because for years my neighbours have all seen me as the community spokesperson I come to the meetings here, I meet with the police the labour councillors trying to get the rubbish picked up, trying to get a hold of the antisocial behaviour which doesn't come from Old Trafford it comes from really outside, when we have had the police involved, we've found out that some of these people are coming from as far as Oldham to come down and deal drugs in the area and they removed our cameras so the antisocial behaviour goes unchecked whereas in other areas now where the new development is it's a lot more secure people feel safer to come out so it's it's sad but I would say we still have our own little community and I, I go out and walk my dog on Penn Park at five o'clock every morning I don't feel afraid because I've lived here for 20 years and I know the people around about me so but yeah it would be helpful if um, it was kind of a bit more included into Old Trafford. <laughs> 
an example of how in place, you know, whether it's roads or whether it's kind of those artificial boundaries, I suppose, the kind of more political boundaries as opposed to community boundaries can really dissect a place, can't they? And as you say, stop somewhere from feeling included. So we talk a lot about, you know, us belonging within a place, but also place belonging within a place and what identity does it have? So, yeah, it's just really interesting to, to hear the difference that makes. Yeah, I think it's a combination of terror blocks being a little bit isolated and us being stuck between two main roads really we are really a kind of residential island that like I say tends to get forgotten <laughs> yeah well I'll be yeah looking on with great curiosity when I cycle past next time <laughs> and now I know it's Penn Park <laughs> yeah because it's a big it's a big green space isn't it that you know yeah the potential if it did have that invitation to to be in it and to feel safe in it you know could be a great place to be active but not absolutely fantastic and unfortunately over the last four years my children have not been able to use that space because of the influx of people doing antisocial behavior and most i mean there must be maybe 30 children that live on that estate uh, in the houses just not including the flats because the flats you only used to be able to have children up to the fourth floor and since they've enclosed the balconies children live up to the 14th floor so they've always said they will protect that space but i don't think protection just enough it's like let's use it let's let's make something happen on that space any community community events that have happened in the past tend to happen on the St Alphonsus Green not on that side and I think that's one thing that Manchester uh, sorry Trafford could maybe do is create a couple of events on the green to bring people from this area over to see what a great resource it is there is a great play park there's a basketball pitch and there's a lot of green space invitation real invitation come and use it and activate it and animate it because you know yeah yeah. (laughs) well i'm there i'll have your cup of tea and i'll have a cake from your neighbor and um yeah maybe we need to go and do that it sounds fantastic massive thank you to jane and the mal shy club for letting us tag along to their wednesday night running club and a huge well done to all of the couch to 5k runners So we've heard how confidence and guidance can support active lives and how the built environment and place can be a barrier. But what about the messages that we hear at a community level and in the media and how do they impact on whether or not we are active? Helen Pidd, the North of England editor for The Guardian, joins me online for a chat about communications. Helen lives in Stockport and is also the founding member of Walk Ride Greater Manchester, an organisation who campaigned for active travel. I start by asking Helen why walking and cycling matters to her. So I really enjoy cycling. I'm a member of a women's only cycling club called Team Glow in Manchester. So I do that kind of socially and on the weekends. And I do like cycling in a kind of utilitarian way just to get from A to B cycling to work and round town and things like that and I've become a bit obsessed with getting my 10,000 footsteps in so I walk when I can. And I know as well that you were key in I guess a particular instance weren't there that took place on on the Fallowfield Loop in Manchester where you got involved because it got your attention and you took some action in deeds not words to to Manchester women's spirit. Yeah so back in October 2018 There were a few women from my cycling club, Team Glow, who all had the same horrendous thing happen to them when they were cycling on the Fallowfield Loop, which is one of the main off-road cycle routes in South Manchester. And they were both basically mugged for their bikes, or they were attempted muggings, because actually these women are pretty fierce and they fought back and they kept hold of their bikes. But it was a really scary thing. All they were trying to do was get home from work and they got ambushed by groups of youths 
in really scary incidents. And they found in each case that the police just didn't seem to want to know, were very slow in coming to the scene and didn't seem to have any enthusiasm for actually trying to catch those who were responsible. And it just really enraged me. And it was sort of personal as well, because I use the Fallowfield loop quite a lot. I really don't like cycling on busy roads and it cuts off miles and miles of busy traffic. It's a really lovely route. And I realised I was frightened to cycle on it now. So I just thought, well, maybe what we should do is have a protest, a two-wheeled protest. I've since found out there were 10 muggings and 10 cyclists have been mugged on that little stretch um, in the last uh, six weeks. So I talked to some of my friends from Team Glow, including the women who had been mugged for their bikes and sort of asked if they were up for it. And we decided to have a, a protest, cycling on the Fallowfield Loop. To, and we cycled all the way to one of Greater Manchester Police's kind of headquarters in East Manchester and back again. And I just thought it was quite a good way of getting media attention and kind of shaming the police into action. I think it was my first protest that I ever organised. Um, you know, Usually, as a journalist, I am reporting on people doing stuff rather than agitating myself. So, yeah, round of applause. I don't know how, I think we've probably got about 200 people here. 300. As, as a journalist, we're always... I kind of got special permission from The Guardian, actually, because it aligns so much with The Guardian's values in terms of safety for women and also active travel. I was allowed to do it. And we had several hundred people come out. We got on the local news. And I really think as a direct result of that, Greater Manchester Police woke up. It was pretty embarrassing to them. They got in touch with me and they did start to actually investigate. And they did catch some of the lads who were responsible. So it kind of showed to me that direct action can work. And as a direct result of the Fallowfield Loop protest, I and a group of other like-minded people came together and we founded what became Walk Ride Greater Manchester, this kind of campaign group to make it nicer and safer to walk or ride a bike. It definitely hit a nerve, didn't it? And I came along to that protest and joined you in that agitation. And I mean, there were, I don't know if you know the numbers, but there were certainly a lot of a lot of women out on that day who, you know, again, wanted to be able to use that space. It's a brilliant, anyone who doesn't know, you know, it's a fantastic off, you know, no traffic green route um, through sort of South Manchester. I use it regularly and it is, you know, it can genuinely be very joyful, um, but it's not if you're fearing for your safety. But I do remember some of the dilemmas at the time because, of course, as soon as then you get attention to say this is the experience that some women have had, it creates a greater sense of fear, doesn't it? You know, more of us felt fearful then of using it, which then the risk is that less people use it and actually less people using it and less people that look like us in our diversity really does make it unsafer. And that's one of the dilemmas that keeps coming up in this project as well is how do you point to, you know, very genuine acts of violence against women that happen as well as a day-to-day sexism and misogyny that we experience out on our streets and validate that and recognise that. And like you did, make sure that action is taken. And how do we at the same time try and remove some of the fear that has been so built into all of us since we're very small, that this place isn't for us. Yeah, when I organised the Fallowfield Loop protest, I did come in for a bit of flack, quite a lot of flack actually from some quarters. There were some people who had been really instrumental in the creation of the Fallowfield Loop. It used to be an old railway line and they felt kind of personally quite affronted that rather than focusing on the, you know, the, the wonderful wildlife and the clean air, that I was focusing on these negative incidents. And I, I kind of saw their point, but 
what's the alternative? Should we just bury the fact that these terrible things are happening and just turn a blind eye to the fact that the police didn't seem to want to know about them? So ultimately, you know, while I can sort of understand those concerns, I, I just don't think it would be a solution to pretend that there aren't problems. That certainly is not going to affect change in any case. You know, and as a journalist, we often get accused of focusing on the negatives and not reporting enough positive news. I suppose that's because news, what makes a news story is something which is at the extremes, usually. It's something which is unusual, which catches your attention, and uh, which is a bit out of the ordinary. And all too often, those are bad things. And people say they want to read positive news stories, but I know for a fact they don't, because I, I can see the statistics on the Guardian website. And stupid stuff gets read, celebrity stuff gets read, but actually... People love reading about terrible crimes. You know, when Sarah Everard was murdered, interest through that went through the roof. Nicola Bully, we're talking at a time when there's been this woman in Lancashire who went missing while walking her dog. She was sadly found, her remains in the river. There was huge interest in that story. So people are interested in the extreme, the sad, the tragic. And I kind of make no apology really as a journalist for covering that kind of thing. But yeah, it can have the effect of maybe over-amplifying and giving an impression that things are worse than they actually are. Whereas statistically speaking, if you cycle down the Fallowfield loop, chances are you'll be absolutely fine. You know, I don't cycle it now in the dark and this is four and a half years on. I had a recent experience. I went to one of the Lady Pedal um, cycling story events. And of course, because there was a mass of us there as women at the event who were then cycling back to the Chalton Wally Range area, we realised that we could all cycle along the loop together, even though it was dark. I'd gone there along the loop, you know, on my own in the daylight. Coming back, I assumed I'd have to face, you know, the busy traffic in the dark. And that's just the way it'd be because I wouldn't do the loop. And suddenly that journey was transformed to 30 minutes with a group of women who was chatting. It genuinely was so joyful and such a sense of liberation, to be honest. I was quite surprised that even someone that thinks about these things, at how shocked I was, at how nice it was to just be able to do that. And to use that space. I think sort of as women, I sort of just sort of accepted in a way that for several months of the, I like running as well. Well, do I like running? I don't know. I go running. (laughs) I prefer to run before my breakfast um, in the morning. Just works better for me. And I just sort of accept in November, December, January, it gets dark too late. So I can't go before work. So I don't run in the winter. But that's not cool, is it? Like we should be able to get out there. And if all we're trying to do is keep fit or get some fresh air, clear our heads, that we feel that we can't do that in the dark, it's you know, it's a pretty sad thing. And I see my husband going out in the dark sometimes, and I envy him that. Even though statistically I know I'll probably be fine, it's been so conditioned in me to be afraid, it's quite a hard thing to overcome. Definitely. I so it's one of the things that I've tried to do purposely this year is to start going and running in the dark because I realise I struggle to get my runs in, like you say, in winter, in daylight. And it's kind of been a bit of an act, partly because of this project really, a kind of personal kind of sense of activism of actually I'm just gonna go out and I am gonna run at night. And it has enabled me to run far more than I, I generally do or can. But it does come, it feels like an act of resistance. You know, it feels like I'm fighting myself. I'm fighting my, you know, partner who's going, oh, please be careful when you leave. And I'm still picking my route very carefully. And it's been interesting in sharing on social media doing that. I've had a number of people contact me saying that they found that quite inspiring as well and have felt inspired 
to similarly kind of go, okay, maybe I will go and run at dark or go out and not feel fearful. But that then comes with a sense of responsibility as well, because then I think, well, what if, what if something happens to me? I immediately think that's my fault because I've decided to do that. (laughs) What if something happened to somebody else? So already I'm victim blaming myself and assuming the worst, which that is just, you know, me, (laughs) a little following. So I can imagine as well in the media when, you know, you've got a massive following, how do you, that balance of one, you say people want the negative news, but also the risk that if you put out a positive story and encourage people to do something, is there a sense of responsibility as well for what might follow? There is a responsibility that comes with it. Last summer, I'd written an article in The Guardian about cycling and how I felt like people would get really rudgy. There had been a real peak in anti-cyclist kind of media attention. And I was photographed for this article, cycling down Deansgate in Manchester, where they'd just created a new segregated bike lane. I didn't have a helmet on. And for some people, that's just like, that's so irresponsible. You of all people, why are you not wearing a helmet? So yeah, I guess I do carry a bit of responsibility for that, but I, I find it very irritating, you know, with the helmet debate. Let's not get bogged down with that. But the fact that people are more inclined to blame me rather than a potential driver plowing into me or a bus or a lorry turning left. So I kind of accept the responsibility, even though I don't really, I don't see myself as a role model. And I get that all the time, why you're not wearing a helmet. But again, I feel a sense of responsibility. That's only the way it's been framed, hasn't it? You know, again, if, you, if you're able to point to the evidence more, you know, we put a big barrier in the way of people living an active life by telling them they need to wear, you know, do risk assessments before they take a group of people for a walk. You know, we've created all these massive barriers to people doing what should be everyday things about just getting about under your own steam in a safe way. And yeah. Isn't there a responsibility to support people to be active and not contribute to that one in six deaths that follow from inactivity and, you know, all the rest of it? So we've talked a lot about framing and around public narrative and how do we then shift. So, for example, we've talked a little bit about, I guess, that car-centric language that's become so embedded in everything, including our media, where everything naturally adopts this position that we're dependent on cars and we're taking away people's freedom and their liberty if we do something that restricts it. Trying to challenge that is huge and trying to shift that. And as a journalist, when you know that the clicks come, if you play to that and you play into what is already the current kind of culture, how do you gradually change the diet of the beast? It's about providing a balance, I suppose, and providing kind of counter examples you know across all sections of the media whether that's kind of comments travel pieces fitness pieces so that it's not just particularly not just dominated by men because often these things are and i you know i really noted with with the fallowfield loop protest as we've already discussed more than 50 percent of the people who turned up were women and i really think that's probably because i'm a woman and i was fronting it the same is true of Ride Greater Manchester. You know, previously active travel campaigning in Greater Manchester was very, very blokey and it was very kind of like a boys club sort of thing. But, um, you know, three of the directors of Walk Ride GM were women and I think that that is reflected in, in who feels comfortable to come up and talk and raise issues. So I think that representation is really important. And do you find yourself consciously, you know, you can't be what you can't see when you're reporting and doing articles do you intentionally make sure that we see more women and hear more women's stories in those articles? 
Yeah, definitely. And there was, I mean, there's been a push at The Guardian in recent years to make sure that there are women's voices and women's pictures. Like the editor of The Guardian is a woman. We have the first woman in 201 years. And what she does is there is a, a wall at the office in London where they paste up every page of The Guardian each night when it's going to press. And she used to walk past it and be like, where are the women? Where are the women? Where are the women? And the picture editors sort of, they just got used to being like, we need to have better representation. And women need to not just be the ones in the kind of mothering roles or women as victims, but also kind of women as the sort of architects of their own fate and destiny and doing cool things. I really do think it matters. And I, if I'm doing a story and I need to quote three experts, like shame on me if they're all blokes. But the thing is that women this is a generalization, are more likely to say no when approached for comments. They're more, and I do this myself sometimes uh, when I'm asked to do stuff. I'm like, oh, I'm not really an expert in this. I'm not sure, you know, ask. And then blokes, you know, there's some, isn't there some statistic that women think, oh, if I don't know 90% about this topic, I'll say no. Whereas blokes be like, if they know 10%, oh, they'll kind of wing it. So I think there is a bit of an onus on, on women to actually speak up and have their voices heard and to kind of trust in their own expertise and their own judgment. Because I think that, well, again, it's a generalisation that women can be a bit too reticent to put their head above the parapet and kind of be heard. I mean, some of the research I've done around that, particularly around women in politics, showed as well that there is a there is another reason for that. So it's not just necessarily about women's reticence and confidence, that that is because they're more likely also to be criticised if they are seen to get it wrong. And particularly, again, and we've seen, haven't we, about women in politics and in the media, you know, if you're a woman of colour, you're even more likely to get negative criticism if you get a stat wrong that maybe a, a white bloke could do the same thing and it just gets passed off. But suddenly it goes to the core of your credibility in a very sharp way and it can be a very harsh critique. So speaking to lots of women, their caution actually is validated by what they see in here as evidence around about what happens then when you're you do get it wrong or you're not spot on or or people don't see you as the expert. You get it right. And then people just think that you're yeah, wrong. Yeah. You know, when I look in my inbox, the people who complain about my articles, it is ninety percent men. Sometimes they're trying to correct things that I know are right. That kind of confidence to just bowl in, assuming that you know more. And I'm happy to always correct things. I want my stories to be right. So I'd humbly say thank you. And then we change things. But um, yeah, you get a lot of abuse. And, um, you know, if, you're, if you've if you got over a certain number of followers on Twitter, you get a lot. I spend a lot of time muting people, blocking people. And the abuse can uh, can be quite personal about your personal appearance and uh, intelligence or lack thereof. And it can get very, sometimes it's really hurtful. And it's also really tedious. Yeah. So we've talked, you mentioned kind of the need for balance. So how, I guess, if we're reporting and if you're seeing the data and you therefore know what it is that people are hungry for, and that's actually negative stories and it's it's not this positive everyday news, and being able to you know add some balance. And we've heard a lot in this project around, I guess, to that point, really, the, the gap between people's perception, as you describe it, of of not being safe and the data reporting that actually most of the time you probably are quite safe. We can add, we can provide more balance and try and counter and provide both, but we know that the headlines like to be the bit that sticks the most. So actually often the, the detail that follows might make balance it in theory, but people probably won't even get to read that bit or it won't be the bit that sticks. Is there anything else that we can do if we want to paint this picture 
of welcoming, joyful, active streets and places. And we want that to be front and centre. Is there anything else that we can do to help make that the norm and what people click on and see and amplify? It's really tricky because if you even like say if the statistics were to show that for every 50,000 people who cycle down the Fallowfield Loop, one gets mugged, right? And it's a really horrible mugging. I don't think the media would do a story saying 49,999 people uh, got home safely last night. So I think that you have to sort of counter the extremes on one side with the extremes on the other. Because although I said before, people don't like good news, it's not kind of true, they do, but they like kind of extreme good news. So you'd have to be, you have to be picking like really, you know, if you can find really inspiring people who are amazing speakers who maybe have got something that's unusual about them, whether that might be, uh, I don't know, a disability or a talent or something different about their background and kind of put them forward as the spokespeople. Yeah, organising eye-catching things, eye-catching events that might kind of pique the interest of, of journalists. It's not easy. I, I'm not sure I have any solutions for you, but it's all about telling stories and telling stories that are interesting and compelling. And it is possible to do that in a positive way. It's just a bit harder. <laughs> and I appreciate like what you're trying to do is just normalise and make this kind of very everyday and that you don't have to be some superhero to go for a jog at 7am in winter. <laughs> but it's quite hard to get that message out. You know, I did an interview recently with a guy who wants to be the first person with no legs to climb Everest. And he was really interesting and so inspiring. You know, his legs had been blown. He was a Gurkha in the British Army. His legs had been blown off. Like, but I wouldn't do a story about just any old person climbing Everest. <laughs> so it's always the extremes. But if, I think if you can find people who are really interesting in their own right, who can kind of step forward and be the spokespeople, then you might have some success. And finally, to round this episode up, I'm at the GM Moving Conference at the Etihad Stadium to ask our partners and colleagues who are working across the GM Moving agenda in all parts of Greater Manchester about their experiences, ideas and solutions to help everyone move more every day. These are the people who day in, day out, are helping to create the conditions for active lives for all. This includes grassroots football clubs, outdoor venture groups, movement and campaigns. It's lunchtime at the conference and I find Angela and Laurel for Manchester Active and I ask them what are the key ingredients to enable active lives for all. I guess ease is the first one. Sometimes it feels like trying to fit physical activity into my day is a challenge. So I've just tried to find ways where I can do that quite simply and it becomes part of my routine now. So being able to kind of walk the kids to and from school or just in terms of like my childcare arrangements, I walk to pick them up from Childminder after school club. So I can quite easily build up at least 30 minutes, sometimes up to an hour of walking around my neighbourhood because I'm going from A to B. Likewise, if I've got a choice of using the car or public transport, I know by using public transport, I'll be including some walking in that, in that journey. So that might be my preferable choice because it means I'm going to get my exercise in for the day. But yeah, it's, it's a real challenge and it's a real balance of just trying to build it in, fit it in, not feeling guilty about it as well. I think sometimes I give myself a bit of a hard time. I work in physical activity. You almost feel like, you know, you've got to do it because you are trying to lead by example. 
but you know we struggled to try and fit it in as well I think just trying to include moving more you know accepting that that's really good for you doesn't have to be getting getting equipment or getting particular clothing it's just getting out and moving more when we're talking about kind of like streets and being outdoors and active streets um it, it can sometimes be very challenging in terms of the reducing car usage getting more people like walking and cycling and you always come up against the people that are like really anti that that way but if you kind of challenge them on things like well you know do you want your children to breathe like cleaner air that kind of thing and like appealing to what what their values are I don't I think that's something that we would probably all agree on but it's that political will I guess to be bold but then something we've all got to incorporate into how we I guess like live our lives and how we um, interact with others in our working lives as well. So for them it's all about designing moving more into everyday lives so it just becomes a normal part of people's everyday routines. My name's Ryan Bostock and I work for Real PE. So I'm Cathy Brown and I am from Real PE as well. So Real PE is a unique child-centred approach for curriculum PE. I asked Cathy and Ryan what they think creates the conditions for active lives for all. They tell me that for young people especially, parents, carers and schools have a very important role to play. So I think it is people having the enthusiasm and the motivation and the confidence to um, to be active. It's about knowing what they what the opportunities are available to them, and often a negative early experience or a negative experience can detract people and children, adults from from taking part in an active lifestyle. So I think it is around early intervention for children, ensuring that they can grow up developing the the physical skills the behaviors that enables them to feel that they can be active that they want to be active but also it is around the parents of the children Um, a lot of parents aren't confident being active and if we're looking at that cultural change we have to um, bring parents and children together and then by focusing on children and families at an early age we can create habits and behaviors that will enable them to have a lifelong relationship a positive relationship with physical activity so it's a it's a it's a long game as well really i think you've got one you've got to get the buy-in from the school in terms of them meeting the the curriculum needs and the the physical activity guidelines but then as soon as they leave those school doors they can't quite monitor what goes on at home so in terms of them being able to find something that that manages that sort of active time at home and then providing that opportunity for them to sort of when they come back into school they can manage and they can pick up on that on that key learning just across the road i bump into some of my great sport colleagues who head up our work with young people uh, my name is christine and i uh, work for greater sports hi i'm lauren i'm from greater sport hi i'm jess i'm from greater sport i ask them what role young people can play in helping themselves and their peers to be more active i think they just need to be given a voice on it because we can't be young people once you grow up you don't know what kind of their their opinions, their thoughts on this, you know, what we might deem as a usable space might not be something that they want to use or they feel safe to access. What we deem as cool and in, you know, let's put a skate park up because actually they're skateboarding, you know, 
we don't know so it, it's listening to them it's taking their voice in and young people will come up with things that naturally adults or people in the system would straight away say no you know why can't we draw something on the pavements to encourage kind of activity to be fun as people are walking to school why can't you put you know more equipment on the street as people are walking for to, to be used um, and actually young people have those ideas that we can and sometimes we need to just stop saying no straight away listen to them and see where we could meet in the middle a little bit to yeah to make it a little bit more accessible I think just talking from the children and people work we're doing in Greater Manchester um, there's an element of making sure they're followed up with so making sure we do get the youth voice at the centre and giving their opinions to what they want and how they want to lead their lives but actually they're told about it in terms of the follow-up loop and the feedback loop so actually what was done with their information what did what was the contribution that they made and how did that impact on decisions I think from a children and young people point of view, it makes it really relevant um, hearing their voices. But also I think we've got a responsibility in our areas of work to enable those young voices to be heard uh, and working with those networks and really enabling those conversations to happen. So I see that we've really got a responsibility um, within Greater Sport and that's part of our work streams, the children and young people team to enable that to happen. I'm Dean Gilmore. I'm the Partnership Development Manager for School Sport Partnerships in Salford. Uh, I'm Sharon Walls. I'm a school games organiser in Wigan. Dean and Sharon are also fans of listening and explain to me why they think the art of listening is key to identifying the barriers that prevent people from moving more. Listen to them and everything's different things for different people but find out what the needs are and it might be a very simple barrier that they can't get to the place they want to do something because the journey there doesn't feel safe to them. Yeah, I would agree. They've got to feel confident to go out there and think some of that can be built up in themselves as well so I think being listened to and being heard and feeling confident that you've been heard would make a big difference. Next I speak to Charlie from Manchester Active. She's all about making active lives fun. I think a key ingredient for enabling active lives is about it being fun. I think often when we when I grew up certainly exercise was seen as a bit of a punishment And I think active lives should never be framed as you have to exercise in order to pay for eating the wrong things. Um, I think it should be about you should move more because it's great and it's fun. So you've heard how important it is to make moving fun, to involve people, to listen and to help design it into everyday life. But what about money? It's something that Kat from Curators of Change feels is important to discuss when it comes to creating the conditions for active lives for all. Actually taking it right back to the point of the fact that there is nothing about activity that is free, Um, even from buying a pair of trainers that's decent enough to walk in or run in, to having to wash and have the right clothing and stuff. Um, So I think there are some absolute fundamentals that we have to be getting right in our society um, and how we support people and not just assuming that everybody has what a lot of us take for granted in terms of um, materials and, and things to do stuff. And then I think as well, you know, a lot of the work that I do is uh, is with people and communities where actually th- there's that pressure to um, 
to get active or to eat healthier or to do all those things, but actually there's not much consideration given to what else is going on in their life and the fact that it's really hard to get over the psychological barrier or, you know, how do you get somebody to look after your kids or, um, you know, where do you even start with it? So I think it's taking it right back to grassroots for me and that is grounded in the relationships and the conversations that we have with people and how we can really get into ourselves as people working in this space into the heart of the spaces where people are and really just listen to what what would help them. It's not only Kat who's got money on her mind. John from Alternative Adventure Outdoor Activity Service explains that life and all its complexities can be the biggest barrier for people moving more. It's a bit of a virtuous circle as well, isn't it? If you're fit and healthy, it's easier to keep fit and healthy. Being comfortably off helps as well, unfortunately, in that respect. Being able to, yeah, being able to be active comes on comes after a lot of other things are in place. Yeah, it's almost the icing on the cake. I'm Kerry from A Brilliant Thing. Kerry too wants us to think about our lives and most importantly, to check our privilege. Um, I think we've got to recognise privilege before we do anything else. So what does active mean to you and me and what are our barriers um, that we might face? Um, and actually, sometimes we can be working towards not being active in some of the things that we do and actually that those are the things that are keeping us safe or keeping us happy so I don't think it's just about telling people what to do uh, I'm Olivia and I'm from City in the Community I'm George I'm from Bury Council Olivia explains why accessibility is a real issue especially again around money whilst George says that communication between different services and agencies is a really key ingredient it's money. The programmes we put on are free because we work in areas of high deprivation. But I don't think there's enough people out there, there's enough companies out there doing that. Like, you have to pay for everything. And if it's not accessible, then people aren't going to get active. They're not going to, like, go and do these things. And I think, yeah, accessibility is one of the main, main, main things. So, yeah, accessibility, that's a bit of... I'm nicking the point, but I think that's one of the main ones uh, for myself. But then it's just, like, word of mouth and actually communications and sort of like events like this and networking and speaking to people, letting people know what's about in each other's sort of boroughs, helping each other, like lessons learned and stuff like that. We have like monthly sort of meetings where I'll meet other sort of um, colleagues within like Greater Manchester from like Wigan and Stockport and talk about what they're sort of doing for active travel. Um, and then we'll sort of go back and have different meetings about oh, what we're doing. So we've just launched a bike library. So a guy from Wigan wanted to know more about that and how it works for when he launches his. So it's just sort of sharing lessons, I suppose, and sort of networking and helping each other out. Hello, my name's Ollie, and I'm from Greystone Action Sports in Salford. Um, my name's Tom, and I'm also from uh, Greystone Action Sports in Salford. Tom and Ollie bring it back to fun, and of course, a range of opportunities and activities. A variety of activities for everyone. People aren't going to like the same thing, so offering as many different avenues as possible. Keep, I know it sounds so, so boringly simple, but keep it fun. I think that's what draws and keeps people in the most. I think, yeah, like you say, it's just opportunities for everyone to get engaged and everyone's got something that they enjoy doing. And it's just about connecting communities, connecting people to those activities, making them accessible and finding, finding out ways, resources and networks in which everyone can find habits that they can do and fit into their lives. Everyone's got different lives. We're all different. We all like different things. We all get a buzz off different things. And it's just finding that and finding a path to get there and do it and 
make it habit. Finally, I grab Andy from the Bike Kitchen, who explains that enablers are the biggest ingredient to create the conditions for active lives for all. So we save bikes from landfill, so we get donated bikes which we fix and then either we sell to cover the cost of what it's cost to replace them, or in some cases we've got bikes that aren't we fix but aren't really of um, a quality sellable value, so we donate them. So the enabler there is, well actually... How do I physically move? So I, I want to ride a bike, but I've not got one. Can't afford one. Can't afford the upkeep of it. So the enabler there is, well, there's the bicycle, there's the scooter, there's the trike, there's the, the method of movement. And then it's that's, that's part of it. And the next bit then is that infrastructure makes people feel safe to do it in the first place. So if they've not got a safe, in their mind, a safe wave, that might be it's, it's a linked up cycle path to the park, to somewhere else. So you've got an, off, an off-road route um, to tackle that that perception of danger if you've gone to you've got that people then want a bike there's no point having a bike and I've got a bike and I never ride it because the road's too dangerous and you want them to have it's, they kind of run hand in hand so enablers for us are the tools and the actual physical equipment to do so I'll extra little bit is once they're doing that it's keeping that bike on the road so obviously bikes are expensive to repair so having some basic knowledge can save you some money before you start so we we operate a number of basic maintenance courses and they're, they're available from other places that allow the the person who's got that bike to get that bike on the road before it gets some more difficult or more task, heavier task job. Again, that's an enabler. So I know I can fix my bike. I know I can fix it to a certain level. If something really goes wrong with it, then I need to go to the shop. But you're cutting those costs down. You're cutting that sort of that barrier down. So well, actually, I can't go and do it. A big thanks to everyone who we spoke to at the Dear Moving Conference. What a buzzing day. If you'd like to come to the next conference, keep a lookout on our socials and on the GM Moving website. We've already started planning our next one for February 2024. Thanks for listening to this Active Lives episode of the Right to the Streets edition of the GM Moving podcast. This episode has covered a lot of the different barriers that can really get in the way of people living an active life. Be that cost, culture, communications, caring responsibilities, or the day-to-day challenges like transport, time, and conflicting pressures. We've heard how important it is, therefore, to make activities fun, social, affordable, accessible, and to design in a way that can fit with the realities of people's day-to-day life. This means listening to people, really listening tailoring to what matters to them and to our different individual motivations. It's clear, getting active on our streets, in our parks and across our communities is not just down to the individual. We all have a role we can play to enable more people to move more of the time. You can hear more about the work going on at a local level across Greater Manchester to enable active lives in Series 2 of the Dear Moving podcast. You can also read more about what we are learning about the different influences on whether or not people are active and the inequalities that exist on our GM Moving website. We'd love to hear more from you. What messages and stories do you see and hear around active lives? Which connect with you and inspire you to move more? And which act as a barrier? What language resonates and what jars? Have you got a story you can share about who and what helps you to be active? Whatever it is, let us know and we'll share your thoughts on future episodes of this podcast. We've got a few ways you can get in touch. You can tell us on social media or on Facebook and Twitter 
simply search GM Moving or Greater Sport. Or you can leave us a voicemail. You can find the link in the episode show notes and on our GM Moving website. Just search Right to the Streets podcast. A big thanks to everyone who has contributed to this episode. We'll be releasing more episodes throughout the next few months, so keep an eye on our social media pages for when the next one will be released. Or simply hit follow or subscribe on whatever podcast player you're listening to right now. This means the latest episode will go straight into your library as soon as it's released. This Right to the Streets series, the Dream Moving podcast, is one element of the Right to Streets project, led by Great Sport, Trafford Council, Open Data Manchester and other GM Moving partners. Thanks to funding from the Home Office for Safer Streets. This series is a Mike Media production.